Thanks for checking out this episode of Business Black Belts. I really appreciate you listening and hope you get some great insights out of today's leader. Let's dive into the show. Welcome to another episode of Business Black Belts. I am David Golding, and I am here with Vincent Finazzo, CEO of River Wards Produce. How are you today, Vincent? Doing well, Dave. Great. Thanks so much for uh, making the time for me today and your busy schedule. Um, you know, you are in a fascinating business, and I want to dig into that. But before we do it, um, maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do. Sure. Um, well, you know, I didn't get into the grocery trade initially by choice. It was kind of just, you know, a natural progression of things I was interested in. So I've always been interested in food. Um, I was raised by my mother and my grandparents in a very food centric household and kitchen. And so I was always surrounded by those things. Um, as I was growing up. And then, you know, naturally when I left home, I wanted nothing to do with food or anything of the sort. Uh, I studied art and art history in Chicago and ended up in New York. And then I, you know, started to pay attention to chefs and food while I was still working in the art world. And then I came to Philadelphia and, uh, was working and practicing in the art community here. I took a job at Whole Foods and I worked my way up through the company pretty fast. And, uh, ooh, excuse me. Um, worked my way up through the company pretty fast. And, you know, this was all pre Amazon and everything like that. So I, saw a lot of things that I loved and a lot of things that I didn't agree with. And, um, you know, I kind of was told to kind of just like stay in my place, stop making so much noise. And, uh, I left the company to take a job with, uh, some national produce brokerage companies. And I worked there for a while and then started my own distribution company. And that, that was involving only restaurants but there was a strong demand from uh, customers and friends and neighbors for a retail experience. And so we started that in 2015 in a small garage. And the response since then has been pretty wild, you know? Yeah, I'll say um, in, in a very short amount of time, uh, you've done some incredible things, especially in a business that I think is very challenging to remain independent, given um, all the behemoths that have entered that space over over time. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, how do you compete um, in that space, given you know, this, the advantages that scale gives someone like an Amazon or a Walmart or even a lot of the, or a Kroger, you know, there's, and then like here in Pittsburgh, there's, you know, two dominant chains, um, Giant Eagle and Shop and Save. So how do you compete? Well, Riverwards, you know, is 
a neighborhood market that's focused on the experience of shopping. So our competition kind of exists in this vacuum that the bigger box stores are creating by existing. They themselves with each other should be worried. You know, you have the Wegmans, Albertsons, Walmarts, Kroger's of the world, really putting the pressure on the smaller chains like the, you know, Save-A-Lot, Thriftway, Giant, you know, Acme, things like that. So they're battling each other for market share and their vision is out of touch and outdated. Um, and they kind of keep fighting for the same thing, which is these, you know, 50, 60, 90,000 square foot buildings, uh, that offer everything under the sun. Um, they, have giant parking lots, huge receiving areas, and they just don't fit into a small format uh, market. You know, like for, for example, you know, we have a location that's just under 2000 square feet and we have another location that's just under 3000 square feet. Um, but our, you know, income per square footage is probably 10 times that of a big box store. And, and that is just because, uh, we refine our options and our SKUs and we pack it in and we make it so that we're not auto centric. We're in the center of busy new neighborhoods and people can walk to the market and they don't just go on Sunday. They go four or five times a day to buy for dinner and breakfast, you know, going forward. And so back to, you know, quickly answer your question is that, their fight for the top spot is eroding the customer experience. And that's what we double down on. Um, I really believe that grocery shopping is a really pleasant thing to do. And it's a very human thing to do to pick and source your food. We might not be like, hunter gatherers at this point, but no one is going to pick out the right tomato or avocado other than you. And this can be really said if anyone, you know, listening has done Instacart or Fresh Direct or Amazon Fresh and you get produce and it's just not what you want. You know, it's not the right tomato or the lettuce just got some spots on it that you wouldn't have picked out. You know, this is very different from a box of pasta or a can of soup. You know, there's a psychological decision to produce and to fresh food. And so by doubling down on the experience of someone coming to the market, uh, it's pleasant. It's nice. Our stores are beautiful. They're easy on the eyes. Our employees are nice and want to talk to you and things like that. And you know, that's what we're after is people having an experience off screen. Yeah, it sounds like as you were describing that, um, first of all, you do such a great job of, of describing it um, that I thought of it's almost like as these guys fight it out and focus on the areas that they're focused on it it really creates a huge opportunity for you 
and gives you in some ways a really compelling advantage because you're focused on something totally different. And really, let's face it, people, um, you know, love to buy, they don't want to be sold, which is something that I routinely um, tell myself and remind myself when I'm, you know, being that I'm in sales. And I know that's not an exact correlation to what you're describing, but the, what that really says is it's about the experience, right? When I am going to spend my hard earned money, it should be a good experience. And not only that, but the experience is what brings me back. And in looking, I've never been to one of your stores yet, but I, I am definitely, next time I'm in Philadelphia, I'm going to one, but just looking online, they really truly are beautiful. I mean, what you're doing there is, is incredible. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of brass tacks and widgets when it comes to grocery. Um, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of percentages and a lot of logistics that are very business 101. The things that separate us from the pack are the intangibles the way it feels when you walk in a space, the curation, the aesthetics, how well everything's taken care of. You've all been to a grocery store when it's just destroyed and that makes you not want to be there or a meat department that stinks or, you know, just having, you know, uh, Delivery shoppers, whether it's like, you know, someone from Instacart or Amazon Fresh or something like that, fighting over you and around you to quickly fill their orders. You know, the last thing you want is when you're like deciding if you want to buy something or you're thinking about what you want to cook, you know, because let's be honest, like not everyone comes to the grocery store with like four meals planned out all ready to roll. Some people go to the grocery store because they need to, and then they go there to feel inspired or get an idea. And it's really hard when someone's reaching over your shoulder or saying, excuse me, because like, they're just like filling an order and it adds a type of anxiety that didn't used to be there, you know? And this is, we're talking, it wasn't that big of a deal in, you know, five years ago, maybe like two years before the pandemic, I really started to notice it, uh, especially after visiting um, some big chains in Manhattan. And I was like, whoa, these are just tiny fulfillment centers. Like this is what's, this is what they're doing. And then when the pandemic hit, um, it really doubled down that and they started to take away elements of experience, whether that's cafes or, you know, healthy eating demo spots or areas that the employees would interact with the customers and things like that to put like Metro shelves or coolers so that they can have like online grocery pickup. Um, so what Riverwards is after is to kind of like slow the whole experience down. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, as you were describing that, I'm thinking by slowing the experience down and making it enjoyable, there's no doubt that that's, they buy more because when I go to the store, I can't wait to get out of there, right? I do all the right. grocery shopping because my wife literally can't stand going to the store. And so um, as a you know good husband, I take on that role and I'm the same way, right? I mean, 
um, especially if I have to go to a place, you know, there's obviously some choices that I have. If I end up in one of the places I really don't like, man, I just can't wait to get out of there. Whereas if I was really enjoying the experience, if people were engaging me and asking how they could help me and they were really helpful, I'm going to spend more money. And I'm probably not going to be as focused on price as I would be if I was somewhere else. Is that, is that kind of the way that it works? Yeah. I mean, we try to be as uh, price competitive as we can. Um, you know, we also tackle a lot of workers' right issues that hmm. a lot of stores don't. You know, our minimum yeah. wage is $16 an hour. Um, we offer a benefits package after 90 days. Um, we offer an extensive, you know, uh, mental and physical health resource package and, you know, employee discounts and really try to put the grocery worker on the pedestal they deserve, you know, and during the pandemic, everyone was like, you're everyone, you're all heroes for like four months and then it's fine. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't about yeah. to, you yeah. know, offer pay and then take it away, you know? So I just like rolled it into our model and, um, you know, I think that the grocery worker is a trade, you know, that like a postal worker or a firefighter is like essential to the operations of a community and we want to treat everyone well. That is just um, so refreshing because I think in, in our world today, in our culture today, that's just, you just don't see that. Um, and uh, clearly that is a, a method that is leading to your success, right? By taking care of your people, investing in your people. Because um, that's, again, something you just don't see, especially in, in retail and grocery. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that as we grow and open more stores, we're just going to double down and expand upon that. Because if someone doesn't, you know, you know, if someone doesn't want to be at work, they're not going to be present. They're not going to, you know, Dave, see you shopping in the meat department and see you get London broil and then be like, yo, what are you going to do with that? Because like I just read in this week's, you know, Bon Appetit about like people doing them on the grill, but doing them like for a really long time and, you know, and just engaging you and getting you to talk about food. You know, if you don't want to be part of the, the, the system and, and, and the experience, you know, then no one's going to have a good time. One of the things that you said that intrigued me is that per square foot, you have up to 10 X the income. Does that translate into margin as well? Uh, no, not all the time. Um, you know, margin is a strategic and tricky part of the grocery world. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of things. We have our target margins, right? You know, and, and those come in um, gross before labor and shrink and things of that nature. Um, but we really, we really strive to provide value and convenience to someone on top of experience. 
for example, when something's a good buy in produce right now, I can get, you know, some really awesome sweet corn that's coming out of Georgia. Mm. And I, uh, I can buy enough of it. You know, I can buy a whole pallet, two pallets worth, and I'm able to sell it at, you know, right now, like 49 cents an ear is probably the average at some grocery stores. Um, and I can match or I can even beat some of the local chains. Um, I can beat wow. the local chains on an item like corn because to be honest, very rarely does someone ever walk in the door and just buy corn. You know, yep. you, you buy the things to go along with it. And so using this kind of, uh, you know, comparison strategy and, the, you know, building upon ingredients and recipes, you kind of are able to extract components of a meal and offer them cheap pasta, bread, uh, celery, carrot, onions, potatoes. You know, we, we, we sell all our produce virtually is package free. So there's like, you don't have to come into our store and buy five pounds of potatoes ever. You can buy one potato. You know, we sell a majority of our produce by the pound which allows people to buy for one person or buy for one meal. Um, and so there's the convenience factor and in, in the availability that would then allow someone to come in and maybe they can get, you know, some really cheap basic produce items and maybe splurge on that like beautiful loaf of sourdough or some condiment, you know, that's they've seen on their Instagram advertisements or some chefs using on social media, uh, you know, being able to get a nice but affordable cracker is just going to make you want to buy a better cheese. But, you know, if you kind of try to make a big margin on every single item, you, you, you push more people away and you move less volume. And so the goal really is, is to move more stuff. If you move more stuff, you can sell things for less. And that's the goal. Yeah. Talking about moving stuff, we are in a very inflationary environment. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously the, the, the cost of moving stuff is getting much more expensive as, as is everything. How are you dealing with that? Um, so there's kind of like two worlds for us, right? There's the grocery side of things, which is all of the hard products. And then there's the produce side of things. Um, from the produce side of things, you know, we work directly with a lot of farmers and we, we do importing as well. So from a local perspective, um, fuel prices are uh, a lot higher than they were last year. It costs about 40% more to fill up our trucks when we send them out to farms. Um, cardboard is more expensive than it's ever been. Uh, everything comes in a box. So when, if you have a farmer that was used to paying 75 cents a box, um, and now they're paying sometimes close to a dollar 50 or two bucks a box, 
that times two, three, four hundred uh, starts to add up. Um, from a not so local perspective, uh, we could talk like FOB, like freight on board for sending citrus from California. Before, um, you would probably pay like an average of two or three bucks per box. That's before, let's say, you know, that's before the box is filled with oranges to send that from California to mm. the East Coast. And now we're looking close to, to 10 bucks a box. Um, so that's 10 bucks on top of the cost of the box, of the labor, and of the fruit. That's just to move it from point A to point B. So if you think about everything that goes into growing an orange from the farm labor to the water to picking and packing to the packaging, so the box, to storage, to moving it to another storage, from that storage to a truck, and then from that truck across the country to here. You know, there's a lot of elements of labor that are adding to this, which is, you know, things could move across the country and, you know, average about five days before. And now we're seeing things take two weeks, sometimes three, because they'll pick it and pack it and put it ready to ship, but there's no drivers. Um, or, you know, a lot of industries got disrupted where they're not back freighting, you know, backloading anything, you know, it'd be like, <laughs> this is, I, I don't, you know, it'd be like sending oranges from California to Philly and then sending cheesesteaks back to California. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, yeah. there, there's less of that. So sometimes there's empty trucks making the commute and they charge for that. So um, there's that. Uh, and, and that has to do with like domestic products moving around the country, um, you know, and then importing. So uh, an example would be cheese. Cheese is a really good example right now. Um, normally it's three weeks on the water or, you know, that's like how much, how long it takes to get something, you know, across uh, some of the oceans. And uh a report I just read was like, we're awesome if we are like shooting for eight and uh, that's two months, you know? So I sell a lot of Parmesan cheese, right? And um, we buy, we buy whole wheels, we buy whole wheels and we break them down ourselves. You know, I have to order those almost three and a half months in advance to make sure that they're showing up at the rate that I need them to show up. Um, and before the companies were just like, you know, they were holding inventory in the U S and, or they could get things air freighted very fast, you know, two days or something like that. And it would be here. Uh, that's all changed. You know, I used to spend a lot of time, uh, importing fresh mushrooms from the West coast things that you can't get on the East coast, like porcini and morels and things like that, chanterelles. And, uh, the prices just make it where it's like, I'm not trying to sell chanterelles for $85 a pound. Um, I can't do it. 
You know, if, if someone wants yeah. things special order, like for friends or restaurants, we always, we'll just tell them and we'll do it, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that retail. Um, you know, I, and that, that was a big part of our business, especially like just for the excitement factor, you know, I can get really awesome stuff all the time. Uh, before it was really cool to be able to sell a mango steen, you know, and I could sell for like four bucks. Uh, now I would have to charge like yeah. $7 for a fruit that's the size of a racquetball, even though it's super delicious and really special and amazing. Uh, it's kind of hard to do that these days, but I'm lucky. We have an amazing local farm community that we support. So I might not be able to import dragon fruit or mango steens right now, but local strawberry season's just wrapping up. I'm connected with an organic blueberry farmer in New Jersey, and we run or an organic blueberry selection full line until September. And that's about to pick up in about 10 days. Um, and so cherries, sour cherries, sweet cherries, rainier cherries, different stone fruits of so peaches, plums, apricots, apriums, all of that stuff, you know, we get from Pennsylvania, from Maryland, New Jersey, New York, you know, and we really like double down on our community. The freight's less when I'm getting something from three hours away. Yeah, listen, Washington State grows some of the best cherries in the world. Mount Hood, Hood River cherries, you can't beat them. If you can get them, that's awesome. Right now, we're looking at my cost for a box of Washington cherries is $120. Normally, that would be like 65 bucks a box and that's because of weather on top of this so they got a lot of more snow out west normally um which is good for water levels it's very good for you know the water table and and pests and things like that but it's bad when that second frost comes and knocks out you know 60 percent of the cherry blossoms and their supplies down and so they can charge they can charge 120 bucks a box and you know some of the bigger places unlike us can take a hit you know they can they can sell cherries at a loss so that you come in and buy cherries um you know the some of the big box guys also buy futures you know um one of the biggest classic examples of this would be like saint patrick's day um if you try to buy cabbage or red potatoes on the open market two, three days before St. Patrick's Day, they're like either nowhere to be found or they're like very expensive. But these bigger companies will go to a cabbage farmer and say like, hey, I'll buy the next five years of your crop and I'll pay you up front. It can either work out really awesome for a farmer or if there was a weather delay and some people lost their crops and cabbage is going for eight, nine X, they're, they're missing out on the free market because they sold their futures, you know? So there's so many elements that are involved around the supply chain as far as produce grows to shift over to grocery. Um, there's lots of out of stocks, lots of packaging changes. You're, you're seeing companies switch from glass to plastic, um, which is, you know, to reduce freight. It's easier to get plastic, you know, glass, has to show up to their factory as a container um, and come from somewhere. So it glass is very expensive. You'll, you'll see even the biggest name brands 
uh, inconsistencies, tiny, tiny, tiny inconsistencies that you might not know. Um, like I'm trying to give a good example, like the caps, like the, the, the caps on a hot sauce. Normally they might be this really cool red, right? They're like in that, they're that brand, they're all the same red. Now, you know, you would open a case and you as a consumer might not notice it because you don't look at 30 or 40 of something at the same time as like we do. But then some, they'll just be half of them will be black. They'll be black and red or half of them. You know, they're just trying to get caps from wherever. Uh, so you'll, you'll see a lot of those like minute yeah. inconsistencies. Um, you'll see people switching packaging to reduce labor. Uh, King Arthur flour had to do this during the pandemic where they just were selling so much flour that they needed to package it faster. So they switched to a like gusseted upright plastic bag rather than the typical folded paper bag. Um, and that was just so they could produce more flour and they could have a machine autom- autom- you know, automate the whole process. So you'll see that. And then you kind of see some like unfortunate stuff from some of the bigger distributors where they will just change prices without telling anyone. And uh, if you aren't quick to audit and catch it, you know, you might be selling something for less than you paid for it. You know, so all of those supply chains factor everything. And, you know, it's not just food, you know, I, there's equipment in here. Um, mm. You know, if you want to, uh, to order a brand new piece of refrigeration, like it, it can be almost two years out right now. Um, if there's a weird part in a door or some kind of door heater or a light in something like you better have access to someone that knows how to fix something because you can go and try and buy something as simple as like a proprietary light bulb for a refrigerated case. And it just isn't there. You can't find it anywhere or something. You know, uh, printers for scales or printer paper, you know, it's, it's, it's all these minute, tiny, tiny aspects of our businesses that will get disrupted and the chain reaction, you know, that revolves around that. It's wild. Um, and I love it because, you know, you're, um, bringing so many things, uh, to my attention that I don't even think about in my day to day. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, th- there's pluses and minuses that I hear too, in that for the local cherry farmer, what's going on in Washington and with the cost is probably a really good thing because their business does better right. as a result. Yeah. 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 You know, but and then, we, we have so our th- connections. What about them? freshness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, when I was uh, describing the oranges, you know, things that used to take a week to get here can take longer, you know, things that might have less of an impact, like more shelf stable items. But, you know, there's been cheeses that I've, we've bought from France that we just sent back, you know, we just like the, the distributor delivered them and we opened it and I was like, yo, this is already ammoniated. Like this is no good. Luckily, you know, we bring in some cool yeah. stuff from overseas, but we support an absolute ton of local Pennsylvania dairies. You know, all of the fresh, you know, dairy that we sell, aside from cheeses, is all Pennsylvania dairy. All of our eggs are from Pennsylvania. 
you know, a huge selection of our cheese case is all Pennsylvania cheese. We work with some amazing cheesemakers and mongers from all over the state and the Tri-County area. Um, not only because it's good and it's a better product, it's awesome to support your neighbors and your friends and yeah. do that. But, you know, now it's becoming the financial savvy way to do things. You know, where yeah. you might. Yeah, you're really overcoming it. Yeah, you were before. You know, you're, you're, it would be like expensive to go to your chain and they'd be like, oh, it's so much, you know, it's so cheap to go here and get this. The farmer's market's so expensive. And now it's like, well, man, the farmer's market's looking pretty good right now. You know, <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting how things will just flip like that. Um, now, now, when when you send that cheese back to France, who ultimately is it? The distributor is it? The manufacturer of the cheese? I mean, who takes that loss? Um, that's going to be diff- different based on uh, the distributor, the producer, and their agreements. Uh, mm, if you. Okay. If you have really good receiving, you know, we're not going to receive it. We're not paying for that. That's just how that works. Yeah. Um, so yep. typically it depends on, you know, the quality control and the different inspections and checkpoints along the way for importing. But, you know, um, there there is an example where uh, the USDA lost funding a few years ago and had to close some inspection sites overseas. One of them, which was in Spain and Spain produces a very large amount of clementines, your uh, cuties or halos or those little seedless peelable clementines. A lot of those come from uh, Portugal, Spain and Morocco. Um, And because of our limitations through the USDA about preventing diseases from spreading, they need to be inspected through a USDA facility in order to come to America. Well, the facility in Spain was closed. And, you know, uh, a lot of importers were like, we don't know what we're going to do this year. And I was joking with some guys and I was like, like, they're just going to send it to Morocco and then send it here. And that's what they did, you know. But yeah. it's a fresh product. You know, that adds three, four days and three, four dollars per unit. And that's, that's the way food moves. So, um, you know, it's you're, you're seeing a lot of things right now. Uh, avocados. Avocados are the most expensive I've ever seen them. Um, so mm. and. You know, they should be, you know, uh, there's a banana shortage right now. I don't know if you've read about that. That one's made the headlines a little bit. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, that's has to do with the ports and the, the political climate in uh, South and Central America, where a lot of the bananas, all of the bananas in the world come from pretty much. And uh, there's some extortion and some, you know, um, cartel involvement with them being upset with the current government and basically putting the squeeze on these ports. It happened. uh, It's happening right now with bananas. You know, something that 
takes a long, uh, really long time to grow, takes a lot of resources, travels the farthest, and is the cheapest in the grocery store. You know, sometimes is due yeah. for a little reckoning. Um, you may remember six, seven years ago, there was an, a thing like the exact same situations, cartel related with limes. Um, in the yes, of- I do remember that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And that was, you know, that had to do with Hurricane Katrina blowing in a fungus that affected a majority of the lime trees in Florida, Texas, and California. And so in order to stop the spread of this disease, we cut all our lime trees down. It take about a decade to, you know, six, Mm. seven years to really start producing limes again. All the limes started coming from Mexico in the, you know, organized crime that is overseeing the ports saw a lot more limes coming through than normal and they just put the squeeze on it. You know, they wanted their cut. Um, so everything from politics to climate, you know, it affects the way that food moves and is priced. That's fascinating stuff. So, so where do you go from here? I mean, you, you've opened up, you know, your second location, uh, recently. Um, you know, what is the, the plan, because I know also I, I I do want to briefly talk about kind of the, those two uh, locations are different, and so let's talk about that, and then let's talk about you know where things are going. So the first location is in a, one of Philadelphia's first firehouses. It was built in uh, the early 1800s. Uh, it's a beautiful old building. It's just under 2,000 square feet. We use every single inch of this building. It's packed mm-hmm. out, floor to ceiling all the time. Um, and we move, you know, at least 500 customers through the door every day. And um, it works really well for us. Uh, storage is an issue. You know, we are really, really creative and have really talented buyers and an amazing team that keeps the store looking beautiful and functional every single day. Our second location is in the Old City neighborhood of Philadelphia. This is right near the Liberty Bell or the Betsy Ross house. It's tucked away on an alley, again, in an old building. Uh, Adaptive reuse is something that uh, personally I'm really passionate about. Um, It's double the size of our original location. So uh, there's a lot more variety. There's a lot more options here. And we also have a full service juice bar that um, we do fresh juices and smoothies on site every day, you know, you just come up and you can order them and the recipes change based on seasonality and availability. Wow. So cool. So, so then what's, what's next? Is it, is it just focusing on, you know, continuing uh, to provide quality um, or is, is there more growth in, in the offing or, you know, what, what's kind of your, your current mindset? Yeah. I mean, always quality. That's, that's part of our, our core. It's always got to sell good stuff. People aren't going to want to come and and buy bad stuff. If we get something that's like super ripe and cheap, we blow, we do like special deals all the time and we blow it out, you know, buy a case of tomatoes for 10 bucks so you can make sauce. We do that in the tomato high season, you know, we work with farmers and we exit a lot of stuff. It's super cool. Um, that being said, uh, for our growth is that, you know, um, number two has been open for just under three months. We're, you know, 
almost achieving profitability there. It will be very shortly until we hit that mark. And then uh, hitting store two or three and four, you know, in the future, our, our model, what we're looking at is a uh, something that stays under 5,000 square feet total, including storage. Um, that is about 3,000 square feet dedicated to uh, retail. And then about 1,500 dedicated to um, more of a fresh experience that we've been building in our uh, new location with the juice bar that's like juices and smoothies moving on to you know acai bowls and different cold things you know getting energy shots and different drinks and then moving into an element where you could come and order really fresh beautiful salads and sandwiches and get you know a whole beautiful experience in the market so that you can come in, you can buy some beautiful food, you can get inspired, you can get something for the way out and, you know, really take the stress away from feeding yourself something delicious and nutritious and, and, and beautiful. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun, Vincent. I, I just really admire your passion, um, your devotion to your people, to quality, to experience. And really following what's important to you rather than what everybody else is doing. I think that is so critical and, and something that I always admire in people is, you know, you're not afraid to do it your own way. Yeah. You got one shot, you know, like why, why yeah. uh, screw it up? I, you know, I, I think about that all the time and I'm like, you know, I, I, I want to do it well and do it right. Make something that's here to last. And I, I think, you know, we've really hit a lot of core items that um, a lot of bigger companies have been struggling. You see these attempts at small format and they're like 15,000, 20,000 square feet. And, uh, they, 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 they miss it. They miss the point. They don't get it. You know, I've had, I've had competition in here with clipboards and branded polo shirts, you know? So I've dealt with it. I've, yeah. you know, they, they, they see that we've figured something out and that we've cracked this small format crowd. Um, the, you know, millennial generation of figuring out how, to, how they shop and how they're inspired and how they want to cook for themselves. And, you know, um, that's what we're after. And, and that's our niche, you know, something that I'm really proud of is, you know, we're independently owned. Um, there's no private investment. Um, and, you know, we've been building this thing alone from scratch. It's been a very, very difficult process of buying a pineapple for $2 and selling it for four. <laughs> but um, we got here and uh, now, you know, we're, you know, I've put, you know, a five and 10 year plan together. There's a growth strategy to open more stores, enter new markets and what that means from a small company in general is like, 
you know, you start to have to look for those opportunities, you know, whether that's investment or partnerships to, to grow. Um, and, and we're open to it. We're, you know, having those conversations all the time, you know, it's got to find the right fit. Yeah, I'm sure you will. I mean, there's, there's just no doubt in my mind and, uh, it's going to be fun to watch this thing continue to, to grow and evolve. And, um, but before we go, uh, what's a good place, uh, for people to find you, uh, you know, where are you active on social media or is it just your website? You know, let's, uh, put a shout out there. Oh, uh, Instagram, you know, Instagram is, uh, you know, we're very strong and present there. Um, post daily multiple times. Um, and we kind of use it as a way to showcase products or employees or customers and just kind of like let you have snippets of experiences. And, you know, I, I really like to think of yeah. Instagram as not social media and more of a magazine. And that's how we treat it. Yeah. That's cool. I, I would definitely be following you on, on Instagram. So how do I find you? What's your handle there? It's just uh, at Riverwards Produce. You know, and you'll see our oh, little okay, artichoke cool. logo. And, you know, it should be one of the first ones that pops up. All right. Well, Vincent, this has been just a, an absolute joy. Look forward to staying in touch. And thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Yeah, Dave, I, I appreciate all the thoughtful questions and giving me the opportunity to talk. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Business Black Belts. Should you want to see more content on both the show, marketing, and business in general, feel free to check out my LinkedIn. Thanks.